You're listening to the Pop Tart Podcast. Girls down. You already know. We have seen the rising again. We have seen the rising again. We have seen the rising again of the female MC. Amen. Amen. I think sometimes we think the loudest folks or the most hysterical folks are the folks who are winning. Amen. Amen. If you live long enough, you will experience catastrophe and it won't just be personal catastrophe. It, there will be scales of catastrophe. Amen. Amen. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Pop-Tarts. I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watts. We're both editors of Bust Magazine in New York City. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And today we have such a special guest. Today's guest has been doing some of the most engaging writing on intersectional feminism to come out in the last five years. And we are big fans of hers at Bust. Dr. Brittany Cooper is an author, professor, activist, and cultural critic currently teaching at Rutgers University. She is co-founder of the Crunk Feminist Collective, a scholar activist group for feminists of color that began as a super popular blog and now has evolved into the thriving Substack newsletter, The Remix. In 2017, she co-authored and edited the Crunk Feminist Collection anthology and also released Beyond Respectability, the Intellectual Thought of Race Women. That book was then followed up with her acclaimed 2018 book, Eloquent Rage, A Black Feminist Discovers Her Superpower. Now she's back with a feminist guide to life written along with her co-authors, Susanna M. Morris and Chanel Craft Tanner called Feminist AF, A Guide to Crushing Girlhood. This resource book for young feminists coming out on October 5th from Norton Young Readers uses intersectional feminist frameworks to help young people grapple with the most pressing challenges they face. I cannot wait to talk all about it. Welcome, Brittany Cooper. Yay, you're here. Yay, I'm here. Thank you for having me. Thank Amazing. you. Amazing. Um, I would love to start at the beginning. I know that you are originally from Ruston, Louisiana. You got your BA in English and political science from Howard before moving on to get your advanced degrees in American studies and women's studies at Emory. Can you talk a little bit about how and when you became the professional feminist that we all know and love today? How did feminism take over your life? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I would say that I actually started identifying as a feminist as a 23-year-old graduate student. It took me a while to really embrace it because on the one hand, I grew up in a family where women ran everything. I was raised by a single mom and her sisters and my grandmother. So I didn't always understand this world of male dominance uh, until I really began to take courses that used feminism as a central analytic as a grad student. At which point I realized the ways that patriarchy had deeply shaped my life. Um, my father um, died when I was young, but he was abusive and he struggled with addiction. Um, and so I realized that so much of my own understanding about how family worked came from having to navigate the, the sort of sporadic violence uh, of a parental figure. And so feminism then began to make sense to me. It began to give me language uh, it began to give me language for experiences that I'd had. And I also saw models of what it meant to embody a particular kind of power because I had these Black women professors who were saying, it's not just race, it's also gender. Um, and I, you know, I'd always, I've, I consider myself a girl's girl. Like I, my, you know, I have deep relationships with women. I always have. Um, I always prefer the company of women to men, right? All of those sorts of things. And to me, then recognizing that rejecting feminism actually went against all of the kind of core principles that really shaped my life and how I moved through the world didn't make sense anymore. Uh, and so then I began to embrace it. Cool. Amazing. I, I'm curious, did your experience at Howard, uh, which is a historically black university, inform your decision to focus on the intersections of race and pop culture and feminism in your work? You know, I, I talk a little bit about this in, uh, in Eloquent Rage. Um, 
Howard actually was the place where I was I was really resistant to a feminist analysis. Um, Howard is, at least at the time that I was a student there in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, was very blackity black black in the best possible ways, right? Um, and I had really gone to Howard in part because I'd grown up going to predominantly white schools. And there's a way that that experience can assault the psyche of black children and so Howard was a place to sort of heal and to undo many of the anti-Black ideas that I had imbibed um, being in the environments that I was in. But at that time, I think things are different now. It wasn't particularly great with its gender analysis. Um, you know, I never took a course where folks taught me anything about feminism. Um, and that was one of the things that felt egregious to me when I then got to graduate school, which was at a predominantly white institution. And when I then began to learn about all of these really important black women figures who had been so central to black life, and I hadn't taken courses where they had been centered. Um, and I'm happy to say that in the ensuing decades, you know, um, I've had the pleasure of meeting Howard students who are absolutely feminist and who have had the opportunity to learn about much of the work that I didn't learn about. Um, but I learned, but what Howard did for me was to show me both the benefits of being in all black institutional context. There's just something about that that you cannot replicate. And that's why we're seeing so many students flock to Howard in this age of black lives matter. That's why they've had exploding admissions. I mean, it's also vice president Kamala Harris being an alum, but even prior to her, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's because we had these movements in the streets and folks wanted to be in safe spaces. And at the same time, part of what an intersectional feminist analysis teaches you and that black feminists have said forever is that race first political analysis or race only political analysis is actually quite dangerous to the well-being of black women. Um, you know, and that this like centering of our story as though it's only a story about saving black men and elevating black men literally leaves out everybody who is not a cisgender heterosexual black man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, that actually dovetails quite nicely into my next question. Your newest book is called Feminist AF, A Guide to Crushing Girlhood. And in it, you and your co-authors write in the introduction, this book is for loud and rowdy girls, quiet and nerdy girls, girls who rock naturals, girls who wear weaves, outspoken girls, opinionated girls, girls still finding their voice, girls who are already feminist and girls who don't know what feminism is, queer girls, trans girls, and gender non-binary young folks who want to make the world better and who need the insights feminism has to make it happen. I'm so curious about how you went about writing a feminist guide to life now for a younger generation that is just exploding the gender binary more and more every day. Like how, how did you dive into discussing girlhood for this generation? Yeah. You know, part of the thing that, that has mattered to us, you know, to me, Suzanne and Chanel, um, we've been a part of the Crunk Feminist Collective for more than a decade. Uh, and since we began the collective and even before, we've always had a commitment to working with and being in community with young people. Many of the members of the Crunk Feminist Collective are parents uh, in much of our early program when we were working with girls in our local communities. I used to be a seventh grade teacher, all of these sorts of things. And so, um, so we felt like one, young people are actually quite sophisticated. You know what I mean? And quite frankly, they're challenging all of us. And in so many ways, they are ahead of the game and asking us to get on board. Um, and part of what we felt like is that the way to be good feminist allies is to say, here are some things that we think we know about what it means to try to live out these politics. And we want to be welcoming. We don't want to be gatekeepers. We want to be able to have an intergenerational conversation because Sometimes we don't get this thing quite right, which is to say that sometimes we think that part of what it means to make space for young people to lead is then to tell them nothing or to act as though there's like nothing that we could share with them. Right. Um, and that and that can create other kinds of problems, you know. Um, and so we've all got to figure out how to coexist on the planet together. And part of it is about recognizing that we all have shared wisdom. And so we basically sort of you know, positioned ourselves in this book is like cool aunties who you can have all the conversations that you want to have. We recognize that we'll get challenged on some things from young people here. We're sure that some of our references are probably very auntie and that they probably are outdated, <laughs> right? 
but we're okay with that because what we also believe is that young people are appreciate sincerity and appreciate a desire to have a conversation with them that is not about talking down to them or Mm -hmm. preaching to them or lecturing to them, but saying we are in the struggle together. um, And we recognize it as a collective struggle, not just the thing that adults know everything and have to save the world, because quite frankly, young people keep showing us over and over again, how the world we've handed them is quite screwed up. And we're not even sure how long we're going to make it on the planet. Um, you know, and so this is both a way to take responsibility and also a way to just say, we think y'all are cool and we want to be in conversation, but we also think that the work we've committed our lives to is cool and useful. You you say far a little bit later in that introduction, you say, we can build a world where gender is a resource, not a barrier. Do you feel like you're like actually making a case for claiming girlhood or womanhood? I think that what we are saying is that for the folks in the world who identify as girls and women, there are sets of analyses that become really important to understanding that experience, right? Um, and one of the things to say, too, is that the girls and the girls that are really at the center of this book are black and brown girls, right? Because a lot of the feminist books that get produced in this moment really take white girls as a kind of default. Uh, mm-hmm. And then they, you know, and then they add a little bit of color and stir, And so we thought, well, how are black and brown girls, how are girls who, you know, may have experienced similar to some of the experiences we had as young people, how are they growing up in the world and understanding their place in relationship to feminism? Because all of us grew up working class. All of us grew up with, you know, with with one one parent. Um, All of us dealt with significant forms of violence and loss before we were teenagers, Right. Um, And so we wanted to say to those kind of girls that never get talked to in feminism, they get talked about, they get talked at. Right. That there is a place for you and a way that this politics um, is already shaping your life. And so you being conversant and what that looks like becomes really important. I'm so glad that you brought that up. I was just about to mention that I'm the book reviews editor at Bust. And so we, you know, every at least four times a year, we get books in uh, for review that are guides to life for young feminists. And 99.9% of the time, the default is a a white girl's perspective. Mm -hmm. And so that's definitely the thing that just jumped out so beautifully and strongly about your guide that it is for everyone, but it it completely defaults to uh, women of color. And I just think it's so important. A lot of the advice that you dispense also addresses a much broader spectrum of concerns that I've seen in those other teen guides that I just talked about. You tackle questions including, what do you do when you feel like your natural hair is ugly or when classmates keep touching it? How do you handle self-confidence if your family or your culture favors fair-skinned women over those with darker skin tones? And how do you balance your identities if you're an immigrant or a child of immigrants? Talk to me about promoting a YA book that centers students of color so strongly and beautifully at a time when parents are just freaking the fuck out (laughs) at school board (laughs) meetings across the country because they are afraid of critical race theory, infiltrating public schools and brainwashing their children to think in ways that don't just default to the white perspective automatically. I mean, look, we're going to see how it goes. Uh, you know, it, it could be a shit show. It, it could go, it could go drastically wrong, but you know, we'll, as, as young people say, we're going to stand 10 toes down in the idea that the world is better when we learn the perspectives of all kinds of folks. And isn't it important for white girls to come to learn that there's all kinds of ways to be girls, right? Isn't it important for cis kids to come to learn like, you know, trans girls are helping us to make and shape what girlhood means. And there was a limit to what we could do in terms of representing trans experience because we're all cis girls but and women. But what we thought was at least what we want to say is we are clear that your perspective matters, is central, is critical to the work that we're doing. And we don't want to keep reproducing divisions. And so we hope that this book finds girls like us you know, I wish that a book like this existed. And so some of it is us like writing to the girls we once were. And mm-hmm. even though, you know, we think like, I mean, sometimes it feels like our the kids, kids today are from another planet. But then the other part of us knows 
that it's just one planet and the experiences are both really different, but there are some things that we all just have to deal with. And that's thinking about our bodies and what does it mean to be comfortable in them, thinking about them in relationship to politics, navigating our parents and all of the pressure they put on us to actually, you know, to be great or be somebody. And the the nature of those pressures can be really different. Um, And so we wanted to think about experiences that are quote unquote universal, like parental pressure or body politics, but that show up in a particular gloss if you're a girl in a black or brown body. And because two of us are also fat black women, we were like, we want to represent for the big girls too, right? You know, so we wanted to tackle fat phobia. We just tried to think about what are all of the things that are, what are the categories that are most salient for folks right now? And and how are girls thinking about those things? And if we could intervene early and say, here's what we wish we knew, or sis, you don't have to think about it like that. You could think about it this way, uh, that maybe that would be helpful. As a a large person myself, I always really, really appreciate the ways that you advocate and discuss elements of fat liberation in your intersectional discussions of feminism. I always deeply appreciate it. It almost kind of makes me wonder, like, will you ever go farther in terms of like dedicating more work to fat liberation? I know that you have a lot on your plate. I know you're discussing time and blackness and like you're entire like slate is full but I just selfishly as a fat girl like I want the Brittany Cooper fat book (laughs) (laughs) you know I you know I don't know yet it's not on the horizon because I think that there's so many folks that are doing such great work around it um and you know and I think I'm also still on a journey to make sure you know to to think out loud about what it means to be a fat girl in the world. Um, But what I will say is that it's always going to be present in any analysis I bring, you know, um, that I'm never going to shy away from it because quite frankly, you know what, I mean, it's like, you know, we all do feminist work and when, and we all have to deal with dude bros who love to insult us by sending us comments about our bodies in particular ways. Right. And so fatness becomes a cudgel for me as a person who is moving through public space. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, how dare you have a large body and express an opinion on the internet? <laughs> I mean, how, how dare you, how dare you be both loud and fat, right? Because if you're fat, you're supposed to be quiet and you're supposed to ask for permission to take up space. Right. Mm-hmm. And you're supposed to feel guilty and ashamed, um, about your need to occupy more space than maybe other folks do. And I say, fuck all that. I don't agree with any of it. And I sort of move through the world and I, you know, with, with the kind of unapologetic feminism, um, and embrace of self. Um, and I don't, I don't embrace any language that says, I don't love myself because I'm fat. I'm like, I love this body. I love all these curves and the person rubbing on them at night, love them too. Uh, they keep everybody warm. And you know what I mean? Um, and I think that that's like, a perspective that we all need to hear more. What happen, What happens if, if fat folks are, not, are unapologetic? And uh, quite frankly, you know, I, I think that what we get is a lot of moral panic. What do you mean? You're embracing not being healthy. I mean, not be, what's not healthy is the, the punch in the face you're going to give. You keep talking crazy. Yeah. That's what's not healthy. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I was also thinking a bit about that old, Marshall McLuhan nugget, the medium is the message. I was thinking about it a little bit when thinking about your book, mainly because I work at Bust Magazine, which is still a print magazine that I pour my little heart and soul into. But frequently over the past few years, we have had interns come join us for a semester who don't actually know that Bust is a print magazine (laughs) because they only know us from what we've published on our blog. And even one more step removed, they've only encountered the blog through links circulated on social media. So as someone myself who is actively making a feminist magazine in a world where young women don't read magazines, I ask you, is writing a book for young feminists the best format for what you were trying to get across? You know, I think the answer is yes, because I think that we're going to figure out at some point, you know, we've sounded the the death knell of of hardcover books. And we thought that everybody was going to be reading on Nooks and Kindles. You know what I mean? Um, I've looked at the numbers from the books that I have published and they're about even, you know, people are buying paperbacks. They are buying hardbacks. Now, 
I I do lament that many of the kind of like we did grow up in a magazine culture. I was, you know, thinking recently about how my favorite things were to get my copies of Teen and YM and Sassy, you know, and Seventeen. I had all of them, you know, mm-hmm. and I would be sitting in my room reading them all. And here's the thing. And none of them were about black girls. But I was like, this is good, juicy stuff in here. And, you know, and my mom, like, let me get those things because she was fairly she is fairly progressive. Um but also, sometimes part of what it means, I think, to be leaders of a moment is to think beyond what is happening in this moment, right? And in this moment, we are sort of saying everything is going to go digital, but in a world where infrastructure is crumbling, there's going to be a moment where we're going to need to hold on to something, where we're going to need to be able to tangibly touch archives, where we're going to need to be able to engage with work. And I also think that this changes over the course of your life. Um, So I think that young people might be reading digitally now, but I think that there may come a moment when even even just because of eye fatigue, they're like, let me actually look at it in a hardback (laughs) form because we all, you know, like I got my blue light blockers over here right now. Like, you know, books are always going to have a place. Magazines are always going to have a place. And in our in our experience of publishing, um, the fact that YA is such an expansive category and that so many YA books are coming out and young people are super excited to have books that are about their experiences and are about them. Um, I think that all we can do is is be optimistic that things will continue. Yeah. I, I would love to cheerlead for print media as long as I can, <laughs> even if it's so just sentimental. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, and it's, you know, I mean, and some part of the reason why I believe in print media, it's not that I don't see the times, which is why, you know, why we started the Crunk Feminist Collective, which very much worked in digital mediums, right? But I'm also, by training, a historian. And so I work in archives. Um, And it has been so important to be able to tell history by being able to go into archives and to really retrieve it. And sometimes to actually be able to touch the things that other people touch, to have a tactile experience of of a a past. Um, And I don't, and I think that while we don't, Part of the thing I'm saying, too, is our lives have shifted so drastically in this historical era so quickly that I think we're still learning what we need to retain and what we can actually let go of. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I want to hold space for the idea that we are still in a learning process around what the digital can do for us and what it can't do for us. Um, Mm -hmm. And I do think that we will have some more generations to come along and to figure to figure that out. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) Something I admire so much about your work going all the way back to the Crunk Feminist Collective is your commitment to the idea that pop culture can liberate society in truly incredible ways and in ways that are enticing and pleasurable and don't feel like green vegetables going down. (laughs) Um, Who is currently in your feminist pop culture hall of fame. Who in culture would you say is moving us forward currently? I like this question. I mean, yeah. I mean, there look, there is so much good pop culture going on right now. So first of all, we have seen the rising again of the female MC. Like, you know, and so all us girls who grew up in the 90s were like, y'all are back, yay! So I'm just, I'm here for it, you know what I mean? And so Meg the Stallion, I don't know a feminist chick of any age that is not like them nieces, we are here for it, and Cardi and Doja Cat and Sweetie, all of these young folks, um, and, and Lil Nas X, right, who is just exploding the game and is like, you will get all this queer realness, I will give it to you, and you will be fine, right? You will live through it, um... So I'm like, I'm here for, I'm here for all of it. I'm here for the challenge because I quite frankly think that a generation of feminist cultural critics writing 20 years ago and 10 years ago hailed this world and said, this is what we need. I think what we didn't anticipate was that there would actually be culture creators in writers rooms and producing on projects who would be reading our blogs and reading our work and then producing. But now we're beginning to see that. And it's truly amazing. And there's so much good television going on that I just can't name, you know, I cannot name it all, but, um, I was happy to see Michaela Cole win oh, yeah. the other night. You know what I mean? She should have um, won them all, though. She should have I mean, won them all. 
I mean, come on, look, the Emmy, you know, the Academy is not, it's always going to do the thing it does. Um, but I, which is infuriating to be clear, but I also, but what I'm glad about is that it, you know, that we're having real, we have real art with a black woman thinking about sex, like her experience of sexual violence. We didn't imagine a world like that, you know, even five years ago, even 10 years ago, and yet here we are. And so even as we're seeing a kind of empire crumbling around us, which probably needs to crumble, and even though we're dealing with climate change, what we are also dealing with is an elevation of our politics into art um, as a real critical corrective to like the CRT scandals at the school board meeting, right? It's like pop culture is saying you're going, we're going to keep on elevating the conversation. And quite frankly, that's why you're seeing such a fever pitch in these really insular communities, right? Because culture is shifting and we're winning the culture wars. Young people are with us. I don't, you know, I think sometimes we think the loudest folks or the most hysterical folks are the folks who are winning. But I'm like, well, look at the nature of the art that we're putting out right now. You know, look at what Misha Green did with Lovecraft Country, right? Um, I'm never not amazed at Ava DuVernay, not just with Queen Sugar, which is a show that I love, but look at how Ava DuVernay almost single-handedly shifted the amount of women of color who are directing television shows in Hollywood Mm -hmm. with the vehicle of that show. So that's feminist praxis in all these ways. It's not just representation uh, or storytelling in on the in the front of the screen, but it's also actual representation of different kinds of bodies and experiences in decision making positions, um, and that all excites me. As a woman in academia, I'm so curious: Have you taken in the chair yet on Netflix? <laughs> of Do you course. have any thoughts on it? <laughs> yeah, I watched it. I watched it the day after it came out. I watched the whole thing. Um, you know. I- I mean, I I liked it. Uh, I was annoyed by the white boy. I, you know, I just thought he took up too much space. I resonated with the conflict between Sandra O's oh character uh, and the you know black woman professor around what does feminine feminist solidarity look like? What does women of color solidarity look like? You know, in these spaces and how do we hold those experiences? Um, and I, the other thing about me is, even though I am trained to be a critic, I tend to like to let things breathe unless they're egregious. And so all my colleagues sort of rushed to being like, it's it's right or it's wrong or this is, not, you know, it was a lot of white boys saying this is not realistic at all. And I was like, oh, y'all are butthurt because you're not at the center <laughs> of the story anymore. That's interesting. But But what I wanted to allow for is the possibility that this show can sort of make space to tell all the stories that it needs to tell or that it, you know, can tell. And so I think it has places to grow, but I'm, I'm here for it, you know? Yeah, I agree. Um, on the other hand, uh, in terms of the other end of the appreciating pop culture spectrum, yeah. as feminists, there are some pop cultural people and products that, maybe start out as guilty pleasures, like for instance, the Dr. Dre album, The Chronic. (laughs) But at a certain point, turning our backs on these figures feels like a moral imperative. I'm not talking about Dr. Dre now. Like, for example, um, I had to make a clean break from Woody Allen, even though his films were foundational to my young life. I was obsessed with Michael Jackson growing up, and I have very, very hard there's been a difficult reckoning for me around Michael Jackson. Callie had a similar reckoning with R. Kelly. Have you had similar pop culture breakups or have you had to defend favorites against other feminists who think you aren't being feminist enough in the things that you like? Um, You know, nah, I mean, R. Kelly, Kanye West, Chris Brown, T.I., these are all people whose music I appreciate and they can all go. Bill Bill Cosby, I was a critical sort of, you know, figure saying in the public, like, he has to go. We have to cancel him. We can't watch the Cosby show anymore. Like, we're not going to participate in the fantasy anymore. Uh, What I want is for white feminists to do the same, right? Because I think that so much of American popular culture is driven by black pop culture figures, right? Um, And so it becomes really easy. And what black feminists get accused of, which is super hard, is that we have to always be letting go of our icons, right? We always have to be letting go of folks who really become significant to us in particular ways. And we don't always see the same pressure put on white women. So Harvey Weinstein is, is, is an example 
you know. Um, but I'm also like, you know, but yeah, Woody Allen. What about, you know, Ben Roethlis, you know, all your athletes, all your, you know, you know, all of these sort of folks that you and 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 some of that is um that I, you know, the the hard intersectional part of being a black feminist is what does it mean to take clear stances and say, if you abuse women and girls, we you can't sit with us and you have mm-hmm. to go. And also not reinforcing the narrative that black men are sexual predators who are just out here terrorizing everybody when there's such egregious examples right now of this. Right. Um, and I think that that's the work that we continue to have to do. And so much of this involves. And so for me, what I need white women to do is like get your own people and basically be saying to white men, like there's only so much y'all can actually be talking to black men about any fucking thing because your whole history of white masculinity is rooted in the rape and ownership and exploitation of white women and the rape of black women in this country and the rape of indigenous women. Like rape is endemic to how y'all understand power. And that's why y'all are the main ones who are trying to rob women and people who can get pregnant of the right to like determine their own reproductive future. Yeah. Uh, because you feel such, you know, it's like, and so also how do we hold, how do we both critique the spectacular moments like the celebrity folks and also then recognize the way that rape culture just fundamentally shapes how men, regardless of race, move through the world um, and call them out for it so that black women don't bear the undue burden of having to both lop off people that are really important for us culturally. I mean, the loss to culture for, of Bill Cosby is huge. I don't, I don't, I don't equivocate about it. Bye. Like he can go, you know what I mean? I'm really good on that. And I'm also like, but I understood it in 2014, 2015, when I was writing a lot about, about him, the way that so many black men dealt with shame and pain around having to lose him because of the way in which his presence as a pop culture figure was seen as a redemption of a black male body that was all he was in real life acting like the worst stereotypes to get ascribed to black men Mm -hmm. and in pop culture was um was giving america a different perspective on who black men could be and so to have to reckon with that um, i think folks really have to think about how hard it must be for those of us at those intersections of identity to have to do that yeah. And I feel like a really um like a fundamental part of feminism is looking at the culture around us and being like, this is harmful to women. Like these people that we are celebrating are perpetuating harm against women. But at the same time, I hear all the time that cancel culture is eating feminism from within. It's pitting feminists against each other. It's um it's debasing everything that we're trying to do in terms of intersectionality. Like, how do we walk this line? Yeah, look, it's a, that's a question that I am working through in my, in the book I'll have coming out after we publish feminist AF. One of the things that I'm trying to think about is that question. And one of the things that was really helpful to me earlier this week, I reread Audre Lorde's um, essay learning from the sixties. And she talked about, precisely this. And, you know, she said, look, we, we had become so uh, in tune with our rage that at some point we began turning it on each other. We began turning it horizontally. Um, And so as a person who's written a lot about rage and our need to embrace it, one of the things I think we then have to figure out is who are the proper targets of our rage and what, what is going on when we, um, when we have mistaken accountability for turning our rage on people that have similar amounts of power to us. So you will never hear me critique a kind of cancel culture that's about um, punching up at folks who are really using power to do harm. But I do actually have critiques of, and I don't even know that I would call it cancel culture, but I have critiques of a kind of meanness and a kind of lack of grace for people who are similarly positioned to us who who's you know because one of the things we got to figure out is what happens if your politics around something are still in process that doesn't have to be an invitation to be raggedy but i just think about the way that we we feel like we seem like we were the last generation of people to be able to be able to be messy and figure it out because we didn't have to perform all of our politics in the public. So yeah. if someone knew me when I was a 20 year old saying feminism is white girl shit. Right. Um, and then, 
you know, and then saw this transformation or someone knew me when I was a, you know, ranting, raving, conservative evangelical um, and knows me now, right? What I'm thankful that I've had the opportunity to process um, and to not, to not be beholden to the things that I thought 20 years ago or 15 years ago, because we want a politics that doesn't throw people away. Um, and, and I, I do think that we, we've got to have a better ethics of critique. I think we have to have a better ethics of what we mean when we say accountability, because quite frankly, sometimes I think by accountability, we mean we're going to shame you relentlessly. And, quite, and when we do that, it's so clear that the folks who are investing in the public shaming are also doing it so that the lens is never turned on them. And then the last thing that I think that then means is that if we're always focused externally on what is wrong with other people, then we don't have to be accountable for the ways that we need to change, right? Because it's very easy to see the problem with everyone else. It's much harder to recognize that the undoing of centuries of white supremacy and patriarchy and transphobia and hatred of poor folks doesn't get outdone because you read one text, right? Or you took a class or you went to one march. And so that stuff gets worked out relationally, slowly over time. And all of us, if our politics are actually big enough to change the world, then it means that we got to live into that thing day in and day out. If it's a politics that you can change just in the space of a tweet, then I would argue that it probably isn't as revolutionary as you think it is. <laughs> I would agree with that. Um, yeah, I agree. I absolutely agree. I would like to return. You were talking about uh, your career in the context of rage. Your book, Eloquent Rage, A Black Feminist Discovers Her Superpower, discussed ideas surrounding black feminism and the anger of black women as something to be embraced as a powerful force for change. And I think that the three years since that book was released have only proven to reaffirm the present, the premise of your book and, um, and brought it out in ways um, that we couldn't have anticipated, but I think that we certainly appreciate. So I'm wondering what is next in your crystal ball? What do you see as the future of feminism? And is that prediction any different from what you wish that the future would be? Oh, this is interesting. <laughs> what do I see as the future of feminism? Um, well, look, I mean, I think that one of the challenges is that a lot of the future of feminism is going to be with the past of feminism is we, we are facing down for the first time in a very long time, the possibility that Roe is going to be overturned. Um, and, and, you know, that is not a thing that I think any of us really thought could, it's like those of us who knew, knew it could happen, but now it's actually like on the cusp within a matter of months of happening. And so I think that we're going, and here's the thing about thinking of that while also being a black woman, we're also in a moment where voting rights is trash, right? And right. where we're in a national conversation about resecuring all of the generational gains of the 60s and 70s. And so I actually think that so much of the future will be about us coming to learn what perhaps is going to be a really hard lesson, which is that we spent a lot of time in the last 20 years in feminism thinking about how to make sure that we name checked everybody in the sentences that we wrote and in the protests that we had, but we didn't necessarily do the work of shoring up structures for mm. the worlds we're trying to build. Um, and that's not about shade. It's about priorities, right? Um, because, I mean, in the academy, we call this the era of post-structuralism. And so we thought that the structural piece had been secured and that now we could just sort of think about the, all the limitations of the structure. And what you're going to now see in this moment is people coming back and being like, actually, we're going to have to rebuild the structure. And not only that, I think that really radical folks are going to be saying, oh, we need to abolish everything. And, and, and I, I can get with that, except for that while you're abolishing and creating a new world, what you going to do about people's voting rights and food and safety uh, and, you know, access to reproductive self-determination, right? Um, and there's going to have to be a legal apparatus to sustain that until we get to the new world we're trying to build or in tandem as we do it. Um, I think the conversations around abolition and decoloniality and a more robust reckoning with 
Um, indigenous feminisms are going to be really critical to all of the work that any of us who are doing feminist work are doing. Um, and I also think that here in the West, this is not new, but I hope we get better at it. We're going to have to really listen and have a more global perspective about things. Um, we still really struggle with that. And some of the most exciting feminist movements are just, you know, they aren't happening in the U.S., right? Uh, uh, and so I think we're going to be having to listen a bit more and take our cues about what does it mean to actually up in this this old iterate. See, we thought we thought in America when I started teaching ten years ago, my students still were saying things like, "Well, I don't know that I'm a feminist. I mean, I have all my rights." And just in the span of time that I've been a professor, we're like, wait a minute, we might be back in the terror dome and what in the world? And yet what we know is that there are folks around the world who have been living with very er much um, different kinds of traditional patriarchy and not this version of a thing we've been doing mm -hmm. in the U.S. And I think we need to listen to them about how you overcome that, you know. And part of that is just the fact that Americans only speak one language usually and everybody else in the world speaks a, a whole bunch. That's right. It's absolutely <laughs> true. I mean, and I, you know, I am guilty. And and it's sad because, you know, during the early part of the pandemic when we all were downloading Duolingo or whatever and being like, no, you know, we're going to learn those languages that we didn't know. But here's the thing. We also probably actually need to do that um, because the world is going to be global. And and look, I do think that one of the things in the zeitgeist that we are not ready for, um, and you hear the anxiety about it all over our politics is, what about our standing in the world, right? And it's interesting being a Black person watching that because I'm like, well, we always knew y'all were trash. Like, we've been saying <laughs> right. this is a rolling dumpster fire over here. And we would go places and people be like, you're American. And we're like, we Black, child. It don't go the same way for us. Right? <laughs> this, I mean, this is a conversation I've had in many global contexts. Um, and so I think that it's also about recognizing that what Trump did was speed us to the decline of American empire and that even our pretense on the liberal progressive end of things to try to right the ship, um, the, the rest of the world is sort of on notice that this is a teetering, tottering thing and that, yes. that they've got to, you know, that now is the time. And so I think we're going to see a massive rearrangement of global power. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't think we're ready for it um, because I think that my generation and the generation ahead of me, maybe two generations ahead of me, my mom's generation, um, grew up in a world where American dominance was just seen as fact and wasn't seen, right. you know, and, and now, um, what, and, and isn't it interesting that that is going, that we are in this position and it essentially was one man just refusing to do everything, <laughs> right? Who knew that it was all so fragile and yeah. one mediocre white man who had the confidence of a mediocre white man could take this whole thing down <laughs> almost single-handedly, but here we are. The precarity is real. <laughs> yeah. Just one one game show host away from total uh, annihilation. Who knew? <laughs> this is uh, my last question, and it's the last question that I ask every uh, guest on Pop-Tarts, and that question is, what you watching? It is a broad pop cultural question. <laughs> we want to know about books, movies, music, television, music videos, uh, podcast, oh, yeah. anything that you are consuming pop culturally, we want to know about it because it's probably very, very cool. Brittany Cooper, what you watching? So I was just texting about Mayor of Easttown, which I watch watching Hacks um, on HBO Max. Um, I'm look, I'm waiting for the next season of the Babysitters Club. It comes out in October um, I because I am a Babysitters Club like part, it's, uh, those are my people. They're my friends from childhood. Um, I'm, I just finished the first half of the last season of Grace and Frankie. There's a new season of Queen Sugar, which I'm super excited to dig into. Um, let me see. I gave my, I'm listening to female MCs right now. Those are sort of the people I'm listening to. Um, but, oh, and I watched, um, Lord, what is the, what is the show? Um, clickbait. I watched clickbait. Wow. Oh, uh, I haven't seen that. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. So clickbait, I definitely watched that all the way through. And um, uh, Res Dogs. I like Res Dogs, too. Oh, I haven't yes. seen that yet. It looks yes, so yes, good. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. 
Amazing. Yes. Well, that uh, is the end of my questions. I am so appreciative to you for coming on our show. I firmly and enthusiastically believe that the world is better because you are in it, because you are producing work in it, because you are teaching in it. And it's just really been an honor and a privilege to have you on our show. Thank you so much. The pleasure was fine. Thank you. Callie and I are going to take the very briefest of breaks. And when I come back, I'm going to ask Callie and Callie, you're going to ask me what you're watching. Before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be, and you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via wolfievibespublicity.com for details and quotes and tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. Essentially, I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious and I knew would make great podcasts and every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. (laughs) Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted and led by women. We have shows about politics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically, I have a docket. You have a docket. We all have dockets. We all have a docket. Sex. Welcome to my vagina. I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. Yep. <laughs> Scams. I'm Caitlin I'm Smith. <laughs> and, and we, we love, love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German-Russian heiress, and she seems like she has a lot of money, and people buy it. That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. It's amazing. So smart. I mean, so like smart. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. Hey, Pop-Tart listeners. Have you been trying to record your own podcast, but you keep getting bogged down by technical problems? Luscious Logan can take the raw recordings of your show, edit and produce them to give them that rich, full-body sound that you hear right now. If you have a deep need to express yourself and sound good in the process, reach Luscious Logan. LusciousLogan13 at gmail.com That's LusciousLogan13 at gmail.com If you want to have that luscious sound... Back. Hello. Callie, we just talked to Professor Brittany Cooper. She is so fascinating. I felt like I could talk to her forever. I loved it. I love her. Love it. And now, Callie, I would like to know, and I want to know, and I need to know, what you're watching? What you're watching? Um, well, sadly, I'm not getting enough horror movies in because I think I've watched, like, all the good ones. My days are numbered. Um, I did watch Midnight Mass, which everybody's been talking about. This is my quick take. The last episode was amazing. Amazing, amazing. Amazing. But did I have to watch like six episodes of a Catholic older version of Dawson's Creek to get there? (laughs) Because that really was drawn out. I could not disagree more. And that's fine. We can disagree. But since you're bringing up Midnight Mass, what I want to say to you are just a few things. For those of you who don't know, Midnight Mass is on Netflix. It's a supernatural horror miniseries, and it's created by Mike Flanagan, who also created The Haunting of Hill House and The Haunting of Bly Manor for Netflix, which I loved. 
I also um, thought those were slow and boring. <laughs> <laughs> See, I love a slow burn. And yeah. so I was into it. My other thoughts on it are these. I was obsessed with Hamish Linklater's performance as Father Paul. Side note, his mom was a teacher at the acting program at Emerson College when I was there. And so, like, I took a couple of classes from her. Oh, that's awesome. Small world. <laughs> that was a long time ago. So he was like a young, fresh baby actor at the time. And now he's, he's knocking it out of the park as Father Paul. That's what I say. This is also what I thought about it. As someone who has endured way too much forced religious education as a child, I loved the subtext of the, of the series, which is that the Bible can be used to justify absolutely anything. There is nothing, no matter how horrific, that you can't point to Scripture and say, look, the Lord says that we should do this incredibly gory, disgusting thing. I also very much enjoyed how the show subverted the trope of the church always being the entity to rush in when people are in supernatural peril. Like the church doesn't mm -hmm. always get to be the good guys in every horror movie. I'm sorry. So that's why I liked it. <laughs> Do go on, Kelly. The end was phenomenal. Yes. Amazing. Then I've been catching up on American, American Horror Story, the new season. On Hulu, mm -hmm. I think it's on Hulu. They really are just jumping the shark here. This uh -oh. one is all about aliens, alien conspiracies. A people have are have alien babies impregnated into their bodies. Um, Marilyn Monroe is touched upon conspiracies. Mm. It's it's uh, it's it's it, it, yeah. That's how I feel about it. I mean, I'm still gonna watch it. <laughs> That's too bad because they always have such good actors. Yeah, the acting, of course, is phenomenal. But it was like the first part of the season was about um, – man, it was so long ago I forgot. But it's like was two different storylines in one season. And the second part of the storyline is really just that shit the bed, I think. But um, I'll keep – you know, I love my American Horror Story, so I'll sit through it. We'll see. Though I haven't made it through every season because some just I can't. And then <laughs> um, I watched this horror movie, Someone's Inside Your House. It's not spectacular, but I needed a new horror. It's on Netflix. Um, and it's just a killer stalking a bunch of high schoolers because he wants to expose their secrets. And he kills them while wearing a mask of their own faces. <gasps> and I love a good teen horror. Very rude. What's also rude about it is that in one scene, like they're all at like a party or a show or something, and somebody sees the killer wearing this guy's face, and then everybody just like runs and leaves the guy there. And it's like, dude, he's wearing the other guy's face. Not, he's not coming to kill you. He's coming to kill the guy who has the face. You know? <laughs> and they just like I left that dude saying. there. Nobody, nobody was like, let's help that guy because clearly the killer wants to kill him. That was <laughs> pretty rude. <laughs> and then I watched this other horror movie. Also not spectacular, but like I said, I'm running out on, it's called Fun House. Not to be confused with the original Fun House, Carnival of Terrors or Horrors or whatever it was from back in 81. Um, and this one is like eight internet celebrities get invited to this Fun House to compete. Like, you know, like a, um, it's sort of like Big Brother. It's like live streamed. Yeah, it everything sounds is like that show. Um, did you ever see that show Celebrity Ghost Hunters? It sounds like that. Oh, whoa, no, that sounds amazing. Are they hunting, is it celebrities hunting ghosts or is it? Yeah, like hunting ghost hunters celebrity bring ghosts. celebrities. <laughs> Your version sounds better. This one is just B-list celebrities being like taken along by ghost hunters to places that are allegedly haunted. And then you see B-list celebrities like crying and freaking out and running away because they're scared. They could double up and they could have the B-list celebrities looking for, like, A-list celebrity ghosts. <laughs> or, that. like, D-list celebrity ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A-list celebrity ghosts are probably busy doing something else. But, um, so when you, a person, so, that, you know, it's live stream to the whole world. And so people get voted off. But when you get voted, voted off, you get, like, brutally killed. Like, mm. just 
the gore is great. The gore is really great. But it's also like, it's weird because it's like some of the celebrity, like there's a girl there that gets nude to try to get more points. And then there's, she's like crying with her shirt off because she feels like she has to show her tits just so she can not get brutally killed. Also, if they get a tie, then they have to battle it out. And there's like super fucked up games like human pinata and stuff. And they trick them oh. into killing each other. It's it's good gore. It's not the best like writing. I would say. <laughs> but, yeah, that sounds but, too know, intense for some viewers. It, it, was, it was pretty pretty intense. There was a lot of gore. It was much less um, gory than someone's, much more gory than someone's inside the house. And then in the other list of things that aren't great that I ended up watching was Project X, which is an old old movie about a high school party that's just like a regular teen. It's just like an, an, they try to throw like the party that will make them legends. You know what I mean? They're like some dorky mm-hmm. kids, and then everybody finds out, and like the whole town, and the party just gets like super out of control. And it was just fine and whatever. And so the very end, where this random ass bitch shows up with a blowtorch. Oh no! And just sets the whole ass town on fire. And that had me laughing my ass off. And then uh, finally, the last thing I'm watching, which was actually good and not just mediocre, was this documentary on Netflix called This Changes Everything. And it is about women in film and TV and all the bullshit that they have to endure and how like little representation there is. And it is like a who's who of women in Hollywood. Gina Davis, I think she uh, it was her production company that made it. Um, and Reese Witherspoon, Shonda Rhimes, Tracy Ellis Ross, Meryl Streep. I mean, you name a woman in Hollywood and she was probably in this uh, documentary. And Sounds good. It, it is so busty. It, it busted my socks off. Um, <laughs> the title comes from when Thelma and Louise came out, everybody was like, oh, this changes everything. And now there's going to be more uh, female-focused movies and this is going to be the thing that makes it so women can be like the main characters and all that. And then all the women were like, it changed nothing. <laughs> womp, changed womp. Absolutely nothing. And then there was like, a, I forget who was talking about it, but somebody was talking about um, how bullshit it is that they don't even have women in cartoons or female characters in cartoons. There's always just one token girl. And, and so like even kids don't see representation of themselves. Yeah. Like one Smurfette. Right. And then they're always even sexualized sometimes, which is crazy or they're, you know, like they just don't get treated like the male cartoons, you know, just like the same as if it was a TV show. And, um, uh, there was one part where somebody was, I forget what director she was talking about, um, that their camera placement when a woman is directing is a different placement, um, because their, uh, her gaze is different. And, um, (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah, because one, oh, who's a sometimes problematic, shaved her head? And Rose McGowan. <laughs> Rose McGowan. Rose McGowan was talking about how um, she would think she's like doing acting in a scene, but really they're just panning over her ass the whole time. So she doesn't even mm. watch a lot of her older movies because she's like, I was, you know talking in that scene like yeah it's just my tits that you're showing you know which would be frustrating and then um I don't it it, across the it was just perfection I loved it and Reese Witherspoon was talking about how she went to all these different studios and she was like looking for a movie that would that represented women and she wasn't just going to be playing some like background character and the studios had nothing for her and one studio was like oh we probably this one film we can change the male lead into a woman and she's like what the hell and so that that was like what began her to start her production company she's doing the most right now i love all the shows she's producing it is a must watch i tell you and what have (laughs) you been watching thank you so much for asking um Aside from Midnight Mass on Netflix, which I watched because you told me to and I enjoyed it so much, um, I also was one of the millions and billions of people last week who was perpetually streaming Adele's new song and video for her new song, Easy On Me. On October 15th, 
she released her first song in something like six years, I think. And yeah. she just broke the entire internet. Like, uh, she became that song easy on me became Spotify's most streamed song in a single day ever. And then Whoa. Amazon music popped up on Saturday to say that the single had received the most first day Alexa song requests in Amazon music history. Um, it's the song is going to, is from her new album. It's called 30 and it's supposed to come out on November 19th. And it's just going to be the biggest album of the year. And the only other thing I want to say about that, <laughs> I don't want you to hate me for this, but I thought it was a meh. I didn't think it was as good as her last. I thought it was very meh. It will only get one stream from me. That seems to be the theme of this episode. We're going to agree to disagree and that's okay. You're a tough customer. You're hard to please. <laughs> I mean, I love Adele. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe it's because I loved her last album so much. So I had very high mm. expectations. The only other thing that I wanted to say about that is that, Callie, do you remember when Bust Magazine interviewed Adele in 2008? Yes. 2008. We were one of the first magazines to interview Adele ever, literally ever in the history of her life. Bust was there <laughs> fucking first, people. Um, so if you don't believe me, look it up. Bust interviewed Adele in 2008. That's what I want to say about that. And the only other thing that I watched um, that I would like to speak about anyway was Dave Chappelle's Netflix special, Ooh. The Closer. I have I watched, not watched that. I haven't watched it because I think it will piss me off. It pissed me off. I was deeply disappointed. I, I really appreciated Roxanne Gay's essay about it called Dave Chappelle's Brittle Ego that came out in the New York <laughs> Times shortly after that special dropped. She was, she made a lot of very cogent and incisive comments, um, about the fact that he was exploiting the death of his trans friend for mm -hmm. comedy, which was gross. And also that he was, you know, basically telling the mean LGBTQ community to leave his people alone when what he's talking about isn't, uh, you know, to quote Roxane Gay, Dave Chappelle's people aren't men or women or black people. His people are wealthy celebrities, and he resents even the possibility of them facing consequences for their actions. I couldn't agree more when I read that from Roxane Gay. Um, I feel like I made so many excuses for Dave Chappelle for so long because I loved the Chappelle show. Right. But I'm fucking done. And when I was talking about it with my friend who is in the comedy world, who shall remain nameless, she told me that all the bits that I loved the most on Chappelle show were actually written by Neil Brennan anyway. So mm. I should just move on, move on.org. Good to know. Yeah. I read a lot about it, but I didn't watch it because I didn't want to really give it clicks. But so I don't know. I was walking by Camilla when he was watching it and I caught like a little whiff and I was like, oh, no, 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 no. He was talking about turfs. And I was like, I can't be even mm. walking through this room. I'm getting angry. And My just, eyes cannot physically roll far enough. Right. And then it seems like he really just is harping on the fact that he refuses to understand the trans experience. And he just wants to keep talking about how he doesn't want to learn anything. Such a titty baby. I can't. Yeah. It's, um, it, it's like he was just like, ah, it's it. And then I'll have a lot of people that are like, you can, you know, you can do, you shouldn't censor comedians and blah, blah, blah. And that's fine and all. But if your shit ain't funny, your shit ain't funny. Yeah, you can say what you want, but I can also say what I want about what you said. Yeah, exactly. And of course, the last thing that I've been watching is the Majestic Pop-Tarts Patreon page. We really need your help to keep Bust alive, and hopefully you'll be excited by the goodies we've hooked up for Pop-Tarts listeners at patreon.com slash Podcast. Callie and I, with help from Team Bust, have been typing up show notes exclusively for Patreon donors that include links to what everyone has been watching for all 119 episodes so you won't be like Callie and run out of horror movies. You will have an <laughs> endless list of things to watch forever. How We've have I got run out? How is I don't it possible? Know, dude. <laughs> 
We've got totally ad-free episodes available. There's exclusive content on there, including an amazing episode with Big Frida and more. Please check it out at patreon.com slash Pop-Tarts podcast. And finally, I would like to thank our luscious producer and sound engineer, Logan Del Fuego. Muy caliente, Logan. And our girl gang at Bust Magazine. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems and on Instagram at Rems Emily, but you cannot find Callie on social media, so don't try. Don't, don't even dare. Don't come near <laughs> that me. That was a weird snap, Callie. Don't even dare. <laughs> you, can, <laughs> you can email us both. I'm at Emily Rems at Bust.com. Callie W at Bust.com. And you can learn more about this show at bust.com slash Pop-Tarts. And finally, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get the word out, and we super-duper appreciate it. Until next time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.